Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 182, Unequal Justice in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm revisiting two classic episodes to highlight how unfairly the death penalty has been applied in our city's history. First, we'll visit early Boston, in a time when execution by hanging was a shockingly common sentence for everything from murder and piracy to witchcraft and Quakerdom. During this period, hanging was the usual, and execution by fire was decidedly unusual. This gruesome punishment was applied to only members of one race and one sex. And in Boston's history, only two enslaved African-American women were burned at the stake. After that, we'll fast forward by about a century, to a time when it seemed like the death penalty would soon be abolished. After 13 years without an execution in Boston, a black sailor was convicted of first-degree murder. Despite the fact that white men convicted in similar circumstances were sentenced to life in prison, he was condemned to death. And despite tens of thousands of signatures on petitions for clemency, he was hanged at Leverett Street Jail in 1849. But before we talk about the unequal application of the death penalty in Boston, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Kevin Lynch's 1960, The Image of the City. Lynch studied architecture with Frank Lloyd Wright, trained at Yale, Rensselaer, and MIT, and served with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Then he spent 30 years as a professor of urban planning at MIT. During this long career, he analyzed how people perceived the cities that surround them and became a proponent of mental mapping. The image of the city is his most famous work, resulting from a five-year study of how people form mental maps of urban environments. He concluded that most people imagine their cities in predictable ways, and their mental maps are composed of elements Lynch called paths, nodes, districts, landmarks, and edges. Writing about Boston's districts and the difficulty people face in creating mental maps of them, Lynch says, The Boston Common is for many subjects the core of their image of the city, and along with Beacon Hill, the Charles River, and Commonwealth Avenue, is most often mentioned as a particularly vivid place. Often in making their cross-city trips, people would veer off course to touch base here as they went by. A large, planted open space bordering the most intensive district in Boston, a place full of associations, accessible to all, the common is quite unmistakable. It's so located as to expose one edge of three important districts, Beacon Hill, the Back Bay, and the Downtown Shopping District, and is therefore a nucleus from which anyone can expand his knowledge of the environment. Furthermore, it's highly differentiated within itself, including the Little Subway Plaza, the Fountain, the Frog Pond, the Bandstand, the Cemetery, the Swan Pond, and so on. At the same time, this open space has a most peculiar shape, difficult to remember, a five-sided, right-angled figure. Since it's also too large and well-planted for the sides to be intervisible, people are often at sea trying to cross it. And since two of the bounding paths, Boylston and Tremont Streets, are of citywide importance, the difficulty is compounded. Here they cross at right angles, but further out they seem to be parallel, springing perpendicularly from a common baseline, Massachusetts Avenue. In addition, the central shopping activity makes an awkward right-angled turn at the same Boylston-Tremont crossing, 
weakens, and then reappears further up Boylston Street. All this adds up to a critical ambiguity of shape at the city core, a major orientation flaw. Boston is a city of distinctive districts, and in most parts of the central area, one knows where one is simply by the general character of the surrounding area. In one portion, there's the unusual case of a continuous mosaic of such distinctive areas. The sequence, Back Bay, Common, Beacon Hill, Central Shopping. Here, place is never in question. Yet this thematic vividness is typically associated with formlessness or confusing arrangement. If Boston districts could be given structural clarity as well as distinctive character, they would be greatly strengthened. In this failure, incidentally, Boston is probably quite different from many American cities, where areas of formal order have little character. Of course, to study people's mental maps of Boston, Lynch had to transform them into physical maps. He usually did this by having his participants sketch out their mental maps, and sometimes by sketching out what they described to him verbally. He'd then compare the resulting maps or combine many of them into a consensus view of the city or district. To me, these resulting maps are the most delightful part of the book. The book was written in an era before widespread computer graphics, and Lynch had trained as an architect. So the book is packed with neat, hand-drawn maps that are marked up with tidy notation and clear explanations in Lynch's perfect architect's handwriting. Whether these sketches were showing how the docks and warehouses of Boston's waterfront, then a much more active commercial port, prevented most Bostonians from experiencing the harbor, or showing how people first envisioned open spaces and prominent landmarks when describing their cities, these maps are gems. Even if you don't end up buying the book, we'll include a link in the show notes to a collection of Lynch's drawings held by the MIT Library that you can view online. And for our upcoming event this week, I'm featuring a virtual book talk from the Massachusetts Historical Society. Abraham Van Engen of Washington University in St. Louis will be discussing his book, City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism. Here's how the MHS describes the event. Abram van Engen shows how the phrase City on a Hill, from a 1630 sermon by Massachusetts Bay Governor John Winthrop, shaped the story of American exceptionalism in the 20th century. By tracing the strange history of Winthrop's speech, from total obscurity in its own day to pervasive use in modern politics, van Engen reveals the way national stories take shape and shows us how those tales continue to influence competing visions of the country the many different meanings of America that emerge from a preservation of its literary past. The event's free, but to avoid Zoom bombing, you'll have to register in advance to get a link to the virtual meeting. We'll have the registration link, as well as links to Kevin Lynch's Image of the City, in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 182. Before I kick off the show for real, I just want to pause and say a big thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. When I'm putting together a clip show like this, it gives me an excuse to go into our archives and listen to really old episodes. I hope you'll agree that we've evolved a lot in the three and a half years we've been making this show. We're better researchers now and better writers, but what really stands out to me is how much better we sound than we used to. Our Patreon sponsors help make this transformation possible through upgrades to our microphones and especially through use of an online audio processing service that helps us clean up our recordings. You can help us maintain and improve our sound quality, as well as paying for hosting and security costs, 
by contributing as little as $2 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Thanks again to everyone who supports the show in these difficult times. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Despite what a lot of visitors and locals believe, the victims of the Salem witch trials and Boston's local witch trials were hanged, not burned at the stake. However, in the history of Massachusetts, two women were executed by fire, one in 1681 and another in 1755. If witchcraft was a crime against both the state and God, what crime could elicit a worse punishment in Puritan Boston? This story originally appeared way back in episode 27, when our sound quality wasn't quite up to our standards today. A quick content note as well. This segment, at times, uses the coarse racial language of the 17th and 18th century primary sources that went into it, and it describes acts of state violence that are still difficult for me to think about almost three years after recording it. Late one night in July of 1681, two houses caught on fire in the sleepy village of Roxbury. First, the home of Dr. Thomas Swan, and then, a few minutes later, the home of Joshua Lamb. Both fires started near a door, not by the fireplace, and the fires were quickly determined to be the result of arson. Suspicion soon fell on an African-American woman named Mariah, who was enslaved in Joshua Lamb's household. She was arrested, along with two enslaved men from nearby households, and imprisoned in Boston to wait for the next session of the Court of Assistance. At trial, Mariah pleaded guilty to the charge of arson. She described how she carried out the crimes while her friends, Chevalier and Coffee, watched from beneath a nearby fence. First, she snuck into Dr. Swan's house and left a smoldering coal from the fireplace on a wooden floor in front of a bedroom door. The coal slowly allowed the floor to catch fire, giving Mariah a chance to go on to the next house. She had to break into the Lamb household where she was enslaved because they kept the house locked at night. She managed to get the back door open and did the same thing there, using two wood chips to carefully hold a hot coal, which she placed in front of a bedroom door. Not only did this give her a chance to get out before the fire really caught, it also made it that much harder for the residents inside to escape, since the epicenter of the fire was at their bedroom door. It wasn't the first time that arson was used by enslaved people as an act of resistance, and it wouldn't be the last. John Winthrop's diary records the 1641 case of a Boston woman named Bridget Pierce. She had brought a collection of fine and valuable linen goods from Old England, and she had very particular instructions on how her enslaved maid should care for it. Each day, it should be newly washed and curiously folded and pressed, and so left in the parlor overnight. One night, the maid went into the room very late and let fall some snuff of the candle upon the linen, so as by the morning all the linen was burned to tinder and the boards underneath, and some stools, and part of the wainscot burned, and never perceived by any in the house, though some lodged in the chamber overhead, and no ceiling between. In the 1660s, a woman in Hartford complained that, quote, Indians and Negroes had burned her property, and petitioned the colony for compensation. And in February 1681, Increase Mather recorded in his diary that there had been, quote, several houses set on fire in Boston and Roxbury at different times by Negroes. Fire was a tool of resistance, and one of the only ones available to the enslaved. As Wendy Warren, a historian of New England slavery, puts it, 
Because fire was widely available and essential to early modern life, it could not be kept from slaves. Mariah was facing the death penalty. It's a little bit unclear from my sources whether anyone died in the fires she set. Increase Mather's diary says that a child was burnt to death, but none of the other records note that, and Mariah was never charged with murder. Either way, arson was still a capital crime under a Massachusetts law passed in 1652. And if any person of the age aforesaid, 16 years and upwards, shall after the publication hereof wittingly and willingly and feloniously set on fire any dwelling house, meeting house, storehouse, or shall in like manner set on fire any outhouse, barn, stable, lean-to, stack of hay, corn, or wood, or anything of like nature, whereby any dwelling house, meeting house, or storehouse cometh to be burnt, the party or parties vehemently suspected thereof shall be apprehended by warrant from one or more of the magistrates, and committed to prison, there to remain without bail, till the next court of assistance who, upon legal conviction by due proof or confession of the crime, shall adjudge such person or persons to be put to death, and to forfeit so much of his lands, goods, or chattels, as shall make full satisfaction to the party or parties indemnified. Three days after Mariah set her two fires, an enslaved man named Jack was accused of setting fire to a house in Northampton by accident while looking for food to steal. After being given a hundred lashes by his owner, Samuel Wolcott, he vowed that he would hang himself if he ever got the chance. Instead, he escaped from his cruel owner and was on the run from the authorities. If fire was one tool of resistance that was always available to enslaved people, suicide was another. In this week's show notes, we'll link to an episode of the Ben Franklin's World podcast that deals with death, suicide, and slavery in colonial America, where you can hear more about why some slaves would choose self-destruction. Jack was brought to Boston and stood trial at the same court of assistance as Mariah. His case was also a capital case, despite no one having been injured in the fire he accidentally set. On September 6, 1681, the court of assistance, presided over by Massachusetts Bay Colony's governor, Simon Bradstreet, pronounced sentence on Mariah for arson. The prisoner at the bar pleaded and acknowledged herself to be guilty of the fact, and accordingly, the next day, being again brought to the bar, had sentence of death pronounced against her by the Honorable Governor, that she should go from the bar to the prison whence she came, and thence to the place of execution, and there be burned. The Lord be merciful to thy soul, said the Governor. Where the slave Jack had previously threatened to hang himself due to his owner's cruelty, the court of assistance would make that threat a reality. The same day, he received this sentence, that he should go from the bar to the place whence he came, and there be hanged by the neck till he be dead, and then taken down and burnt to ashes in the fire with Mariah. The Lord be merciful to thy soul, said the governor. As we heard, the law called for arsonists to be executed, but the additional measures specified in these sentences went beyond just death. Burning a criminal's corpse was a form of punishment that continued after death, denying the sufferer a Christian burial, and thus any chance of redemption during the Second Coming. It was not uncommon under English common law at the time for any felony considered particularly heinous. Mariah's sentence of burning at the stake was probably a form of lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. 
The Puritans of Massachusetts were strong believers in Mosaic law, which called for an eye for an eye, even when civil law had no such requirement. In this case, Jack was given the lighter sentence of death by hanging, as his arson was accidental, while Mariah was given burning for burning, since her act of arson was also seen as attempted murder. There's also a tradition in English law that many forms of execution were considered immodest when used on a woman. Torture, drawing, quartering, and hanging were all seen as too revealing of a woman's body, so Mariah's sentence may also have been an attempt to preserve her modesty. Coffey and Chevalier, the enslaved men who were charged as Mariah's accomplices, were sentenced to transportation. They were held in jail briefly, then put aboard ships headed for the Caribbean. There, they'd be pressed back into slavery on the sugar plantations, where the average lifespan for a slave was less than seven years. A few days after the sentencing, Increase Mather's diary records that they'd been carried out. 1681, September 22nd. There were three persons executed in Boston, an Englishman for a rape, a Negro man for burning a house at Northampton, and a Negro woman who burnt two houses at Roxbury July 12th, in one of which a child was burned to death. The Negro woman was burned to death, the first yet who has suffered such a death in New England. There is only one other reported case of an execution by fire in the history of Massachusetts, almost 75 years after the death of Mariah and Jack. The second case takes place in 1755 during the administration of Governor William Shirley. This was well after the Puritan theocracy of early Massachusetts Bay came to an end, and during a time when, as we heard in last week's podcast, Boston was supposed to be the most refined, cultured city in North America, and yet it was still possible for a woman to be publicly burned at the stake. On July 1st of that year, a Charlestown resident named John Codman died. The next day, a coroner's inquest determined that he had been poisoned with arsenic, and suspicion fell on the enslaved members of his household. A man named Mark was arrested and interrogated, and he soon revealed a conspiracy to murder Codman. Mark was a literate man and had read the Bible. His scriptural study led him to believe no sin would be committed if he could end Codman's life without shedding his blood. Mark, along with enslaved women belonging to Codman named Phyllis and Phoebe, had quietly reached out to slaves in the households of two Boston doctors to try to acquire poisons with which they could kill their owner. One of the enslaved men they approached turned them down, while another provided a quantity of arsenic. Another enslaved man gave them a quantity of a material known in the sources as black lead. That is probably a form of lead sulfide crystals, known today as galena. It may have been used in glazes by a Charlestown potter. Phoebe and Phyllis would mix small quantities of arsenic and black lead into Codman's food, sometimes serving it to him directly, and sometimes allowing his daughter to serve the tainted food. Finally, on July 1st, they were successful, and Codman was killed by the arsenic in his gruel. Phyllis and Mark were charged with the crime known as petite treason, and it was the only time in the history of Massachusetts when this crime was prosecuted. Where the crime we now know as treason, known then as high treason, was an offense against royalty, petite treason, or petty treason, was reserved for others who attempted to upend the natural hierarchy of a very hierarchical society. As one historian recorded, this crime was restricted to three classes of cases, 
One, where a servant killed his master or mistress. Two, where a wife killed her husband. And three, where a clergyman killed his prelate, or the superior to whom he owed canonical obedience. The sentence in the case of a woman was that she be burned to death, and in the case of a man, that he be drawn to the place of execution, and there hanged by the neck until he be dead. After their arraignment, the defendant stood trial in the courtroom of Stephen Sewell, who was the nephew of Samuel Sewell, the famous judge who presided over, and later apologized for, the Salem witch trials. Pages and pages of testimony from both Mark and Phyllis are preserved. Under questioning, Phyllis admitted to knowingly poisoning Codman, suggested that Mark was the ringleader, and implicated Phoebe as an accomplice. Mark, in turn, admitted to procuring the poison and providing it to Phoebe and Phyllis, along with instructions on how to use it, saying he had asked for enough poison to kill three pigs. Phoebe turned state's evidence and testified against the other two. On September 6th, the court pronounced its sentence against both Phyllis and Mark. Whereas the said Phyllis and Mark at our court aforesaid were each of them convicted of the crime respectively alleged to be committed by them as aforesaid by the verdict of twelve good and lawful men of our said county, and were by the consideration of our said court adjudged to suffer the pains of death. Therefore, as to us appears of record the execution of which said sentence doth still remain to be done, we command you, therefore, that on Thursday the 18th day of September instant, between the hours of one and five o'clock in the daytime, you cause the said Phyllis to be drawn from our gal in the county of Middlesex aforesaid, where she now is, to the place of execution, and there be burnt to death. And also that on the same day, between the hours of one and five of the clock in the daytime, you cause the said Mark to be drawn from the gal in our county of Middlesex aforesaid, where he now is, to the place of execution, and there be hanged up by the neck until he be dead. For her testimony, Phoebe was able to escape trial. Her fate's not entirely clear, but some records indicate that she was transported. That is, sent off to a brutal and likely short life in the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. The Boston Evening Post records the final end of Phyllis and Mark on September 18, 1755. Thursday last, in the afternoon, Mark, a Negro man, and Phyllis, a Negro woman, both servants to the late Captain John Codman of Charlestown, were executed at Cambridge for poisoning their said master, as mentioned in this paper some weeks ago. The fellow was hanged, and the woman was burned at a stake about ten yards distant from the gallows. They both confessed themselves guilty of the crime for which they suffered, acknowledged the justice of their sentence, and died very penitent. After execution, the body of Mark was brought down to Charlestown Common and hanged in chains on a gibbet, erected there for that purpose. Imagine for a moment how terrible that death must be. A sturdy wooden post was driven into the ground with a pile of wood around it. Phyllis would have been led to this pyre and firmly tied to the post. A torch would have been touched to the kindling, starting the bonfire around her. The pain would have been almost instant and excruciating, as her 18th century garb burned from her body. She would have been entirely unable to cry out, due to another tradition of burning at the stake. As a historian recorded, To mitigate the sufferings of felons at the stake, the executioner usually fastened one end of a cord to the stake, and bringing this cord around the neck of the woman, pulled it tightly the moment the torch was applied, and continued to strain until life was extinct, which, 
unless the cord was sooner burnt asunder, generally happened before the condemned had suffered much from the intensity of the flames. I question that historian's assertion that the condemned didn't suffer much. I don't think the sensation of being strangled distracted her in any meaningful way from the sensation of being burned alive. The strangling was likely for the comfort of the crowd. It kept her cries from disturbing the witnesses of her death, as she wouldn't have been able to draw enough breath to scream. In that Boston Evening Post article, it mentions that Mark's body was brought to Charlestown Common and hanged in chains on a gibbet. The practice of gibbeting a body was well established in England and North America at that time. After execution, the body of the condemned would be hung from a gallows-like structure, either in a cage or wrapped up in iron chains. This was done publicly, both as a deterrent to future crime and as another form of punishment after death to deny the condemned a Christian burial and any hope of redemption in the resurrection. In some cases, the body would be painted with tar as a preservative, and it's likely that the chains a body was wrapped in would help maintain its structural integrity. There's no record that Mark's body was tarred, but there is ample record that his body hung in Charlestown for many years. One account of the case recounts Josiah Bartlett's research, stating that the body of Mark is said by Dr. Bartlett to have remained on the gibbet until a short time before the Revolution. Certain it is that when Dr. Caleb Ray passed through Charlestown on the first day of June 1758, on his way from Danvers to join the regiment of which he had been chosen surgeon in the expedition against Ticonderoga, he found the body hanging and, having examined it, recorded in his journal that Mark's skin was but very little broken, although he had hung there near three or four years. We have no firm account stating when Mark's body was cut down or decomposed, but it remained long enough for its location to become a local landmark. It remained a landmark when Paul Revere embarked on his famous ride some 20 years later. In a 1798 letter to Jeremy Belknap, the minister and founder of the Massachusetts Historical Society, Revere described the beginning of his ride to Lexington. I set off upon a very good horse. It was then about 11 o'clock and very pleasant. After I had passed Charlestown Neck and got nearly opposite where Mark was hung in chains, I saw two men on horseback under a tree. Sandwiched between these two tragic executions by fire is another case one will call a near miss. After a series of suspicious fires in March of 1723, an enslaved man named Diego was arrested. He confessed to burning the house belonging to his master, John Powell but under questioning indicated that there was a larger conspiracy among the African Americans in Boston to burn the town as an act of resistance. Indeed, even while Diego was behind bars, a series of arsons and attempted arsons continued. Governor Dummer issued a proclamation blaming, quote, some villainous and desperate Negroes or other dissolute people for entering into a wicked and horrid combination to burn the town. In response, the town formed a military watch to hunt for the perpetrators. In a town meeting on April 15th, Boston passed a series of restrictions against, quote, Indians, Negroes, and mulattoes, which imposed a curfew prohibiting them from assembling, from leaving their master's houses at night, and even restricted what type of work they could do. Though the town watch had been charged with apprehending, quote, Negro and mulatto servants, who were out after 10 p.m. since at least 1736. Against this backdrop, some called for Diego to be burned at the stake, as Mariah had been, 
as an imposition of Mosaic law, burning for burning. A counter-argument came from an unexpected quarter. Reverend Cotton Mather not only argued against the sentence of death by burning, he went as far as suggesting that the fires were God's retribution for the white citizens' unjust treatment of their enslaved brethren. First, the burning of the town has been threatened, and there have been many fires kindled. Our God calls us not only to thankfulness for our preservation, but also to consider what we have to do, that such a desolation by those or some other hands may be prevented. Contention, burning for burning, was required by the word of the glorious God fulfilled by his hand. And considering by what hands the town has been so endangered, there can be nothing more seasonable and reasonable than for us to consider whether our conduct with relation to our African slaves be not one thing for which our God may have a controversy with us. Are they always treated according to the rules of humanity? And much more, Christianity, which is improved and ennobled humanity, are they treated as those that are of one blood with us, and those that have immortal souls in them, and are not mere beasts of burden? In the end, eight enslaved Africans and one white indentured servant were arrested for the 1723 arsons. One died in prison while awaiting trial. Five were acquitted. There is no record of the outcome for two, and Diego, who had confessed to the capital crime of arson, was sentenced to death. However, despite the wishes of some Bostonians, he was executed by hanging and was not burned. Though there are only the two recorded cases of people being executed by fire in Massachusetts, the possibility of burning at the stake hung over the heads of Massachusetts citizens, especially enslaved women, for a century, from the case of Mariah that was recorded by Increase Mather in 1681, to the close call of Diego as pondered by his son Cotton Mather in 1723, to the sad case of Phyllis, who was burned to death in 1755. The laws regarding petite treason remained in effect until 1785, being repealed after Massachusetts adopted its constitution. That same year, Cotton Mather's son, the Reverend Samuel Mather, passed away, meaning that the law spanned three full generations of the Mather family. During this long era, many white people committed arson. None of them were burned to death. For our next story, we'll revisit episode 68. A case of first-degree murder in 1848 nearly brought an end to Massachusetts' death penalty. When a young black sailor named Washington Good was convicted of murdering his shipmate that year, there hadn't been an execution in Boston for 13 years. White men who'd been convicted of first-degree murder had their sentences commuted to life in prison. And luminaries like Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson would ask the governor to do the same thing for good. So why was it that he was sent to the gallows? In the archives of the Concord Library, there's a paper scroll eight inches wide and over seven feet long, covered in signatures. The second signature is that of Henry David Thoreau. On the reverse side, a newspaper clipping identifies the document as a petition against the execution of Washington Good. When it was rediscovered in the archives in the 1960s, little was known about it, and less was known about the man named Washington Good. News coverage of his arrest in 1848 was sparse, as seen here in the Boston Daily Bee. Murder. At 11 o'clock last evening in Richmond Street, a colored man was knocked down and stabbed in three places, in consequence of which he died immediately. 
the murderer, also a Negro, was arrested in Southwick Street at 3 o'clock this morning. You might be left wondering, as Barry Kritzberg was in a 1994 article about the petition, why did 400 citizens of Concord, almost 20% of the population, concern themselves over the fate of an obscure black seaman convicted of murdering a shipmate after a quarrel over a prostitute? The story begins in Boston's North End in the summer of 1848. One June night, a 28-year-old seaman visited his girlfriend of about a year, Mary Ann Williams, in her rooms on Ann Street. The seaman was a black man named Washington Good, who was originally from Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Incidentally, my parents worked in Mercersburg in the late 70s. I was born in a neighboring town. He worked as a cook on two different Boston-based ships, and when he was on shore, he preferred to spend his time in the rough-and-tumble neighborhood that was then known as the Black Sea. The Black Sea was a not-so-subtly-racist nickname for a neighborhood centered on Ann Street, which stretched from Faneuil Hall, past the North End Wharves, through North Square, and along the waterfront. It was a favorite haunt of sailors of all races, becoming one of the few racially integrated spaces in the city at the time. It also became known as the epicenter of vice in the city. Ann Street was lined with taverns, gambling dens, and hundreds of brothels. After a series of police raids in 1851 nabbed hundreds of 'er ne'er-do-wells for piping, fiddling, dancing, drinking, and attending crimes, the city changed the street's name to North Street in 1852 to try to improve its image. The media would make a lot of assumptions about Mary Ann Williams because she made her home along Ann Street, and the defense team in the eventual trial would characterize her as a vile prostitute. She vehemently denied this charge, but the records showed that she had at least one other gentleman caller at the same time she was entertaining Washington Good, and she was still married to a third man. On the evening of June 27, 1848, Good visited Williams in her rooms and spotted a fancy silk handkerchief that he'd never seen before. He asked her about it, and she said it was a gift from Thomas Harding. Harding was another black sailor, and he'd been courting Marianne for a few months. Good flew into a rage and tried to burn the handkerchief. When Williams stopped him, he tore it in half, threw it to the floor, and stomped out of the apartment. An account in the book Rights of Execution describes what played out the next day. The next day, Harding visited Williams and asked what happened to the handkerchief. After she told him, a witness heard Harding claim that he would ask Good to pay for the damaged article. Within the drinking cellars and dancing rooms along Richmond Street that night, Good said he heard Harding was after him and that he was prepared for an encounter. Armed with a sailor's common sheath knife and fortified with strong drink, Good was heard to declare that before the night ended, he would make Rome howl. In the restricted environs of Richmond and Ann Streets, Good, Harding, and Williams encountered one another at Harris's cellar between 10 and 11 o'clock on the night of June 28th. No one recalled whether Harding or Good arrived first, but when Williams entered, Good slapped her with his open hand and shoved her to the floor. At the time, Harding was in another room. When told Good was looking for him, customers heard him reply, Let him come. That's what I want. Good left Harris's first. Harding followed shortly thereafter. Less than half an hour passed before Harding was dead. There were plenty of witnesses who saw Good and Harding in Harris's basement saloon, but nobody saw what transpired after they left. In a nearby alley, somebody hit Thomas Harding over the head hard enough to fracture his skull, 
and left him with a nine-inch deep stab wound between his ribs. Because Good was charged with first-degree murder, he was tried before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, with Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw presiding. The defense counsel argued that the jury should acquit because a conviction would require the death sentence, and they didn't want to have Washington Good's blood on their hands. The prosecution objected, and Judge Shaw upheld it, saying it was out of order to discuss the expediency or justice of the death penalty. Both sides were warned to only argue the facts of the case. Unfortunately, there were very few facts. One witness said he had seen a figure dressed like Good in the alley, but hadn't seen his face. Another said he had heard a voice similar to Good's say, God damn you, I got my revenge. A few witnesses said the killer had been wearing a hat of the same style as Good, and everyone knew that Harding and Good had quarreled, and by 4 a.m., Captain John Harrington had placed Washington Good under arrest at his uncle's boarding house. When he was arrested, Good was carrying a common seaman's sheath knife of about 11 inches. The arresting officer would testify that Good said, I have only one life. You may do with it as you please. Many portrayals focused on Good's race, using the stereotypes of the day to paint him as a monster. One newspaper described him as an ugly-looking fellow with a retreating forehead, high cheekbones, and short, woolly hair who wore a mustache on his upper lip. Reporters, and indeed the prosecutor, would try to paint him as a near brute, unable to control his animalistic passions. On the other side, death penalty opponents would appeal to the Massachusetts abolitionist tendency to argue that his race made Washington good naive a sort of poor, innocent wretch. A sympathetic newspaper said, He had no school or pulpit, no father or mother to teach him. He had been raised in the rice swamps. He had been in New Orleans, where an agent of the Bible Society had been refused to give the Bible to a slave. He floated along into Massachusetts and into Boston, where his class associates. Here he had gotten into a drunken quarrel. Threats were offered on both sides. A man is found murdered and he is charged with the crime, and Massachusetts has nothing better for him than to hang him. Another editorial said, Half-savage as he is, ignorant and unenlightened, because centuries of oppression have debased his race, and because in the midst of enlightenment and civilization, his race alone has been deprived of light and bound down by the laws of perpetual ignorance. His soul is as dark as was that of his ancestors when torn from their African home. It is not good who begs his life at your hands, for I verily believe that no one would call more loudly than he for death in preference to imprisonment. To him, mere animal as he is, life has no joys beyond those which personal freedom gives. Even Good's defense counsel, when Judge Shaw offered Good a chance to speak on his own behalf, claimed that, as a member of a benighted and downtrodden race, he had nothing to say. There are some historic criminal cases where, when we look back, we can recognize a clear miscarriage of justice, where the evidence clearly shows that the accused was innocent. The Washington Good case isn't so clear-cut. From everything we've read, it certainly seems possible that he was guilty. But the prosecution was far from proving that beyond a reasonable doubt. The entire case was built, as William Lloyd Garrison put it, on circumstantial evidence of the most flimsy character. Nevertheless, the jury deliberated for less than 35 minutes before returning a guilty verdict, and Judge Shaw sentenced Washington Good to hang. 
At the time Washington Good received his death sentence, there hadn't been an execution in Boston for 13 years. It was the height of the 19th century movement to abolish the death penalty. The progressive tendency that led reformers to oppose slavery, support women's suffrage, and eventually take up the cause of prohibition also expressed itself in widespread opposition to the death penalty. Advances in science helped doctors of the age cure diseases of the body and the mind. Certainly, it would only be a matter of time until science allowed the eradication of crime. And in the meantime, wasn't it cruel and unusual to hang a man? The sudden influx of Irish immigrants in the 1840s also led to the Catholic Church occupying a newly influential position in Boston, and the Church was against the death penalty. The Boston Pilot, a newspaper published by the local Catholic archdiocese, would write the following. We believe that the fear of punishment does not deter from homicide, and the world is beginning to think so too. In this case, the chief argument for hanging goes to the ground. People will say, blood for blood, tis an old and sound law. But society, even as it is, has long ceased to respect that law. It will not have blood for blood. At all events, if life is to be held such a sacred thing, the deliberate, cold-blooded law should not exhibit itself choking men, should not turn homicide to discountenance murder. We absolutely think it more natural to take a man's awful blood in a desperate quarrel when revenge believes its own wild justice than with the calm, leisurely solemnity of the sheriff and the hangman, much more. By the mid-1830s, it seemed as though these advocates were on the brink of success. An address by Governor Edward Everett in 1836 leaves the listener with the impression that capital punishment was on the verge of abolishment. The ancient rigors of the penal code have been mitigated. Punishments revolting to humanity have been abolished, and others substituted which are believed to answer with equal efficacy all the ends of penal justice, and which are more comfortable to the humanity of the age and the mild spirit of Christianity. A grave question has been started, whether it would be safe to abolish altogether the punishment of death. An increasing tenderness for human life is one of the most decided characteristics of the civilization of the day, and should, in every proper way, be cherished. Whether it can, with safety to the community, be carried so far as to permit the punishment of death to be entirely dispensed with is a question not yet decided by philanthropists and legislators. It may deserve your consideration whether this interesting question can be brought to the test of the sure teacher, experience. An experiment, instituted and pursued for a sufficient length of time, might settle it on the side of mercy. Such a decision would be a matter of cordial congratulation. Should a contrary result ensue, it would probably reconcile the public mind to the continued infliction of capital punishment as a necessary evil. No matter the oratorical zeal Everett brought to the debate— The most anti-death penalty advocates could hope for under his administration was a compromise. In 1839, a bill passed through the Massachusetts General Court that abolished the death penalty for highway robbery and burglary. Other capital crimes, from murder, arson, to rape, and of course piracy, would have to wait. At the same time that activists were advocating to change the laws in Massachusetts to reduce or eliminate the use of the death penalty, the death penalty was being applied less and less. 
Using records from the Death Penalty Information Center, we found that 23 people were executed in Massachusetts during the years from 1801 to 1830, not counting those who were hanged for piracy. If you listen to our recent episode about Cotton Mather's execution sermons for convicted pirates, you'll remember that Massachusetts has always treated piracy as a separate, gravely serious crime, because it was seen as a crime not only against life and limb, but the very fabric of the social order. So leaving aside 10 people who were hanged for piracy, we calculate a rate of 0.53 executions per year over the 15-year period from 1801 to 1815, and 0.93 per year from 1816 to 1830. We then looked at the 15 years from 1831 to 1845, when the last execution in the state before Washington Goods was carried out. During that time period, there were only four non-pirate executions. That works out to a rate of 0.27 executions per year, which is an enormous drop from the preceding period. Anti-death penalty advocates had reason to be optimistic. Before Washington Goode's execution in 1849, nobody had been executed in Massachusetts for a simple murder since 1830. As we mentioned, we're counting piracy separately, and there have been nine hangings for piracy. Three men who were convicted of arson were executed, and one man who was convicted of a heinous rape and murder. But nobody up until that point had been executed for a simple murder since a young man named John Knapp in 1830. Even Albert Terrell, the subject of our 43rd episode, called The Case of the Somnambulist, was not put to death. He had murdered Maria Bickford with a knife, nearly decapitating her, then he set fire to the body. At trial, his defense attorney claimed that he had committed the crime while sleepwalking, and he avoided the gallows. An article in a journal called The Prisoner's Friend that was dedicated to penal reform and abolishing the death penalty compared Good's sentence to that of Terrell and other recent high-profile murder cases. Yes, Washington, thou must die. Thou art too vulgar to excite compassion. What misery there is in being vulgar. A little romance might help thee much. Hadst thou been as fair as Polly Bodine, and crept into a sister's chamber and burned her to death, then there might be hope, for perhaps the twelve might not agree. Or hadst thou been a learned doctor with extensive practice, and known how to drug a brandy prepared for a friend and benefactor who had kindly lent thee money and hid his body under a woodpile, thy case were not quite so bad. Thy life might then be spent in making doorstops or hammering curbstones. Useful work. Or hadst thou found thyself at midnight where a wife could not follow, and in thy haste to depart had slain thy partner and set fire to her chamber, mental infirmity might have a kind word to utter and call thee a sleepwalker, or if done into Latin and given thee out as a somnambulist, there would be little danger for thy neck, and December might be pleasanter than May. When so many white men who faced murder charges were convicted of lesser crimes, pardoned, or had their death sentences commuted, there was widespread outrage at the decision to hang Washington Good. Even the same week Good was sentenced to die, a murderer named Auguste Duty had his sentence commuted from death to life in prison. Which brings us back to the beginning of the story, and the seven-foot-long scroll containing signatures that was found in Concord. After the sentence, opponents of the death penalty formed a committee to lobby for Good's life. They started by posting a handbill around Boston titled, Shall He Be Hung? A version of it appeared in William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, and other papers. Public meetings were held at the Tremont Temple in Boston and churches around the state. 
An open letter to Governor Briggs said, Sir, heaven spare your reputation and your counsel and your posterity, for I fear the very earth will cease before the stain be washed out. Under the names of well-known ministers and prominent abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, Samuel May, and Frederick Douglass himself, letters were circulated to towns around the state soliciting petitions against goods execution. Some towns used the boilerplate language that was included with the letter, while others wrote their own petitions. In Concord, the petition described the impending execution of Washington Good as a crime in which we would under no circumstances participate, which we would prevent if possible, and in the guilt of which we will not, by seeming assent of silence, suffer ourselves to be implicated. Research by the Thoreau Society indicates that the Concord petition might have been circulated by Anna Maria Whitting, an abolitionist and a subscriber to the anti-death penalty publication Prisoner's Friend. Along with the signature of Henry David Thoreau, the Concord petition bears the signature of five members of his immediate family. Ellen Emerson signed it, and there's a signature that might have belonged to her father, Ralph Waldo. In all, over 400 residents of the town signed the petition, over 20% of the population of the town. On the Concord petition, as on many of the surviving petitions, the names are collected into two columns. The men are on the left, and the women are on the right. Because, of course, only the men could vote, so politicians only needed to really pay attention to them. In all, 130 towns in Massachusetts submitted petitions to the governor. Today, of course, there are 351 cities and towns in the Commonwealth. 46 of those were added since 1849, so at the time there were 305 towns which means that over 40% of towns participated in the petition campaign in some way. Among all the petitions, 24,440 signatures were submitted by Massachusetts residents. There were a few additional petitions from places outside the state, including Good's birthplace of Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, but of course those signatures weren't counted. You might ask what opposing public opinion looked like. There was, in fact, a petition campaign in favor of Washington Good's execution by death penalty proponents. The only town that actually submitted a petition in favor of the hanging was Woburn. It misspelled the word execution. There were nine signatures attached. When all was said and done, Governor Briggs agreed to a commutation hearing on April 25th. After hearing testimony, the governor declined to commute Good's sentence and the execution date was set for one month in the future. From the first English settlement of the Massachusetts Bay Colony through the early 1800s, all executions in Massachusetts were held publicly. In response to the growing campaign against the death penalty, executions in mid-19th century Boston began to be carried out privately. Critics said that moving executions to private settings had the effect of moving them out of sight and out of mind inspiring an 1849 poem. Put the scaffold on the common where the multitude can meet, and all the schools and ladies summon, let them all enjoy the treat. What's the use of being private? Hanging is a righteous cause. Men should witness what you drive at when you execute the laws. When Washington Goode's execution was scheduled for May 25, 1849, in the prison yard at the Leverett Street Jail in the West End, an editorial in The Prisoner's Friend decried the private hanging. But again, I would not sanction murder in any form, but I do solemnly believe that the murder which your victim is said to have committed, 
for you are not absolutely certain that you have got the right man, would never have half the corrupting influence upon the community that your legal murder would have on the 25th day of May. It may be done privately, but what of that? Even the most senseless, who can put a thought to a thought, must see through this thin gauze of your lawmakers, that they are ashamed of their own work. What, sir, you propose to benefit the Commonwealth and all future generations, and yet your work must be done privately? No, in heaven's name, let the deed be done on our common at the most holy time and by the most holy men. A review conducted by your Baptist brethren in England recommends that the execution place be St. Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey, and that a bishop or an archbishop be the hangman. Do not skulk behind the stone walls of a miserable jail and there coolly put your victim to the torture. Give us the broad day and the public highway. In fact, why not have it during the religious anniversaries? Would it not give a zest to the services of that Holy Week? Let all the benevolent societies pause and all the Sabbath schools be assembled. Let it have all its sanctifying influences, especially as this will probably be the last man, for you would not have hung a woman, and perchance not even a white man, and possibly not even a man of wealth, and possibly not even done this deed at all, but it has been covertly hinted to me that a few votes were lost last year because no one was executed. But let that pass. The night before the execution, Good met with his clergyman, maintaining his innocence until the end. It was standard operating procedure to post a guard on suicide watch outside the cell of the condemned on the eve of his execution. William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, carried an account of Good's last night on earth. At about 12 o'clock, the officer discovered that Good had attempted to commit suicide by cutting the veins at the elbow, by swallowing a large quantity of tobacco and paper, and by stuffing his blanket into his mouth. Assistance was called and the flow of blood stopped, though he was left in a very weak state. Good had first swallowed tobacco and other substances to try to poison himself, then used a shard of glass to open the veins in his arms, then tried to smother himself by swallowing part of his blanket. A doctor saved his life. The state would not be denied its vengeance. After the doctor stopped the flow of blood, Good spent the rest of the night alternating between vomiting and sleeping fitfully. At 7 a.m. he was awakened. A Reverend Taylor prayed for his forgiveness in the next life, while Good slipped in and out of consciousness due to the blood loss. Activists had raised the idea of using one of the newly discovered anesthesias on condemned prisoners. The law said that, the punishment of death shall be inflicted by hanging the convict by the neck until he is dead. But it didn't say that he had to be conscious. The prisoner's friend, always sympathetic to a convict, argued that ether or chloroform should be used to render a prisoner insensible to pain. The sentence of death could be carried out without unnecessary pain and suffering. The question now arises, how shall the hanging be performed here in Boston? Since the last execution among us, the ether discovery has taken place. Ether or chloroform is now universally used by surgeons in painful operations. Shall not the convict share also the advantages of this benign discovery? He is to be hanged by the neck. Shall not this be done with the least possible pain? If we follow the spirit of the law, there would seem to be no doubt that it must be done with the least possible pain. 
and it seems Eames equally clear that it is within the discretion of the sheriff to permit any form of alleviating the pain which is consistent with the one thing opposed upon him by the law, namely, the hanging of good by the neck until he is dead. We will not undertake to determine whether humanity does not require that the convict, if he chooses, shall be allowed the benefit of ether. We content ourselves with saying that it is clearly within the discretion of the sheriff to permit the pains of the convict to be thus alleviated. At 8.45, it was time for the sheriff and guards to lead Washington Good in a procession to the gallows, but Good couldn't stand up or even keep his eyes open. No ether was administered, but it was unclear whether Good was fully conscious anyway. He was strapped to a chair, and the chair was carried to the scaffold by two guards. About a hundred witnesses observed the execution from the prison yard, while hundreds more crowded into windows and on rooftops in the surrounding streets. The book Rites of Execution describes the final spectacle. The condemned man requested water, and at 9.30, the sheriff led the procession to the gallows with good carried by two constables. He was lifted onto the platform, placed over the drop, and had the rope adjusted around his neck. Sheriff Everleff read the warrant signed by the governor, who was reported to be out of town attending a Baptist convention in Philadelphia. The sheriff asked Good if he had any last words, but the sailor only moaned. His eyes were upturned toward the skies and fixed vacantly upon the void above when the deputy sheriff drew a white hood over Good's face. At 9.45, the drop fell and Good's body, still fastened to the chair, plunged several feet. Those nearest the gallows heard the neck snap. The body hanged 25 minutes before physicians examined it and pronounced Good dead. The next day's newspapers reported the terrible spectacle of a man too weak to stand being strapped to a chair and hanged. The Boston Herald's headline screamed, Leverett Street Tragedy. The Boston investigator said, Washington Good is a colored man, and here ends all reasons for hanging him. Frederick Douglass's paper, the Rochester North Star, said, May this be the last time that Massachusetts thus disgraces herself in the eyes of the thinking and the humane. With this outpouring of emotion, death penalty opponents had reason to be optimistic. Washington Good's death prompted hopeful editorials like this one in the Boston Pilot. The hanging of Washington Good, a colored man, in Boston last week for the murder of Harding in a drunken row, has created a vehement discussion between the friends and opponents of capital punishment. The advocates of hanging argue that society cannot get on without it, that it is necessary as a terror to evildoers and a protection to the community. This is only a question of time. Once upon a time, not long ago, a man would be hanged for stealing a sheep and for forgery. Time has rectified that legislative brutality, scoffingly. In a little time, Justice will be ashamed to remember that she used to strangle poor devils with her white fingers for the good of society. In the years following Washington Good's death, the rate of non-piracy executions in Massachusetts began to creep back up again. From 1846 to 1860, there were six, including Good himself. In the period from 1861 to 1875, ten executions were carried out. In a tragic irony, the movement against the death penalty and petitions in support of Washington Good may well have led to an increase in the number of executions in Massachusetts. If the argument against executing Good had been that the death penalty was applied unfairly to black defendants, 
certainly the remedy would be to hang more white men. The year after Good was executed, John White Webster, an educated, politically connected professor at Harvard Medical School, was sentenced to death for killing his friend George Parkman, one of the richest men of his era. When Parkman went to collect a debt from Webster, the latter man flew into a rage, beating Parkman to death with a fireplace poker. Then, perhaps panicking, he dismembered the body, burned parts in his furnace, attempted to dissolve others with acid, and dumped more down his privy. When a janitor discovered the remains, all that was recovered was half a torso, most of one leg, part of the second, a pelvis, and a badly burned jawbone. You can hear the whole story of Webster's crime and trial in episode 24, but after he was convicted and sentenced to death, his influential friends began to lobby the governor on his behalf, insisting that a prison term was more appropriate for a man of his wealth and class than a hangman's rope. However, Governor Briggs was feeling pressure from the other side as well. The Fall River Weekly News carried an editorial warning Briggs of the political consequences of commuting Webster's sentence. If any delays, misgivings, or symptoms of mercy are manifested, the gibbeted body of Washington Good will be paraded before the mind's eye of His Excellency. If he relents in this case, though the entire population of the state petitioned for a remission of sentence, Governor Briggs will forfeit all claim to public respect as a high-minded, honorable, and impartial chief magistrate. He can do one of two things and retain his character as a man and a public servant. Resign his office, or let the law take its course. Briggs let the law take its course, and Webster was hanged. However, in a political compromise, Briggs led the effort to restrict the use of the death penalty to only cases of first-degree murder. In 1852, he was successful. The Massachusetts General Court passed a bill that outlawed the use of capital punishment for rape, arson, and treason against the state it would remain the ultimate punishment for murder for over a century. Until 1951, the death penalty was required upon conviction for first-degree murder, although governors frequently commuted the sentence to life in prison. The last executions to actually be carried out in Massachusetts took place at Charlestown State Penitentiary in 1947. Since the 1970s, capital punishment has seen a complicated legal history in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as it has across the nation. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the case of Furman v. Georgia that the death penalty was applied inconsistently and arbitrarily, and struck down all death penalty laws in the country until they could be rewritten in a way the court deemed fair. Massachusetts reinstated the death penalty in 1982 under this ruling, but no death sentences were carried out before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled two years later that it could not be applied fairly in the Commonwealth and was thus unconstitutional. In 1997, a 10-year-old Cambridge boy named Jeffrey Curley was kidnapped, raped, murdered, and dumped in a river in Maine. In the months that followed, the state was swept with rage against the pedophiles who had murdered him. Public opinion began swinging in favor of capital punishment, and thousands of people signed a petition in favor of bringing it back. Bob Curley, Jeffrey's father, was very outspoken in leading the campaign to bring back the death penalty. The bill that followed nearly passed. It was defeated by only a single vote in the House of Representatives. A few years later, citing the inherent imperfections in the justice system, 
Bob Curley publicly reversed his position and renounced the death penalty. The debate was briefly reignited by the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing case. When federal prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty for Jokar Sarnayev, they were in opposition to over 55 years of tradition, public opinion in Massachusetts, and the wishes of the victims' families. The parents of Martin Richards, the youngest victim killed in the bombing, spoke out against seeking the death penalty, as did several survivors who lost limbs. At the time, only 30% of the state supported the death penalty in general, and just 15% believed that Tsarnaev should be executed. Twice since the bombing, a state representative from Wilmington has put forward a bill to reinstate the death penalty in Massachusetts. It quietly failed by a vote of 110 to 46 in 2015, and seems unlikely to make it out of committee this time. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about Mariah, Phyllis, or Washington Good, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 182. We'll have links to all the primary sources we used in preparing both segments. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Kevin Lynch's The Image of the City, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before I sign off, I want to share a nice email that we got recently from a reader named Robert. During the early weeks of this experiment in social distancing, he wrote, Hi, Jake and Nikki. I found Hub History via wanting to refresh my memory concerning the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918, having read a book about it some time ago. I've been listening to many episodes here in lockdown, working around the house, cherry-picking favorite topics rather than doing them in order. This morning I learned just how scandalous the Charleston dance was, and what Wonderland Park originally was. Your podcast is excellent. Thank you for doing it. I picture you two under the blanket as described in your casual episode from 2017. Thanks a lot for your kind words, Robert, but just for the record, we're not huddled under a blanket anymore. Our current vocal booth consists of an old moving pad draped over a TV stand. Fancy. Listen, we love getting listener feedback like Robert's email. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, alternate sources that we missed, and anything you care to share. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 